to the podcast Against Disease, hosted by Humanity Against Disease. I'm Kavita Chapla. And I'm Cody Weston. We are joined today by Dr. Kay Redfield-Jameson, who will introduce herself in the next moment. Yes, I'm a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and I study and write about mood disorders, particularly bipolar illness, but also depression. Mm. And you co-authored a significant textbook on manic depressive disorder. Yes, uh, 1,400 pages, more than you ever wanted to know about, <laughs> about bipolar illness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just read one of the chapters. It was dense, but it had good stuff in it. That's awesome. All right. So we wanted to talk about a few things. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Delighted. I know that, I mean, I read your book back in uh, undergrad at Michigan State and since then, I think that was one of my first experiences with even hearing about what bipolar illness was, and just, I guess it kind of framed things in a way that, it was the first time I understood that you can have very severe mental illness and also live an extremely functional life with proper treatment and management, so it's kind of surreal to speak with you in person. Uh, well, thank you. Glad to be here. But uh, what we wanted to talk about is... We've actually covered depression a fair bit with some other faculty members, and we were hoping that we could spend some time on uh, manic depressive illness specifically. So for for starters, what is manic depressive illness, and why should people out there care about it? Bipolar illness or manic depressive illness, uh, more often called bipolar illness in this day and age, is a relatively common illness, about 1% of the population has the traditional, more severe form of the illness, and it's an extremely interesting illness. It has some positive features uh, attached to the very painful and destructive features, so it's, it's quite unusual in that respect in terms of disease. It devastates people's lives if it's left untreated, but fortunately in this day and age we have good treatments. Excellent. Yeah, I know that I've spent a lot of time in my career learning about particularly lithium and Depakote and finding out just how much we've underused lithium. So we may get into that a little bit more later. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the lived experience is of having bipolar disorder? What would somebody who um, want to watch out for if they were concerned that they might have it? And what are some things that put people at higher risk of having bipolar disorder or manic depression? Well, what we know is that it's a genetic illness, and it's one of the most genetic illnesses in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So uh, family history puts you very much more at risk. Family history of suicide, Mm -hmm. of recurrent depression, of bipolar illness. It's an early onset illness in the sense that, like most psychiatric illnesses, Mm -hmm. it hits first in adolescence. So that has a lot of implications both for public health and for individual lives. It's it's not like any heart disease or cognitive disease Mm -hmm. or cancer, which tend to hit later in life. This is an illness that hits you young. And so there are a lot of years that can be lost and devastated to the illness. And uh, again, it can be treated well, but it's very hard to accept that. I think one of the problems of it being an illness that hits you when you're young Mm -hmm. is that your judgment 
is not always what it could be. And mm-hmm. there's a tendency to deny what you have, very understandably. So it's it's a complicated illness. I think that's what makes it an, an interesting illness to treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the study is not doesn't make it so interesting to have. Yeah, we were actually speaking just yesterday about how the fact that it hits so young for a lot of patients is probably the first time they're being confronted with having any kind of severe chronic illness and also mm-hmm. the first time they're being asked to take any kind of medication for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And I think this is, I spend a lot of my time on college campuses because of the age of onset. It's about 17 or 18, which is certainly when I first got ill. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you realize that, you know, it's a time when you're healthy, you're physically healthy, you, yeah. you're bounding around, you're competing, you're up late. Uh, you can eat and drink things that, you know, people ordinarily probably can't do just because they're so active. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get hit by an illness that lays you low, particularly the depression at, at the beginning. And so you have to learn to cope with having the idea that this is not going to go away, mm-hmm. that you got it for life. And that's a very hard thing to accept. And people very often can't accept that for many, many years. Mm-hmm. This tends to present with depression first, is that? Often, yeah. Not always, but often. Okay. And I guess if somebody has a family history or if they're beginning to experience symptoms suggestive of depression, are there, how should they go about being vigilant at that point? What should they look for to see if they should be seeking treatment for bipolar disorder rather than a unipolar depression? Well, I think a couple things. In an ideal world, because it runs in families, mm-hmm. parents will have spoken with kids before they go off to college because it is the age of risk, and you would like it that your parents just sit down with you and say, look, we've got this illness in our family. The odds are you won't get it. If you do get it, it's treatable, but it's really important to get treated. And before they go off to college, get a list of doctors that specialize in in this illness because it is a specialty illness in in that sense. And I think that, you know, what what you want to do is educate people. So Dr. Schwartz here at, at Johns Hopkins has a program where she goes out and teaches high school kids and middle school kids about depression. She just teaches them the symptoms yeah. mm-hmm. and their parents and their teachers. And I think that's very effective. So if you get depressed when you're in college, it's not the first acquaintance with it. Because I think what happens, and certainly when I first got ill, was... I had no concept of it. I mean, I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, mm-hmm. athletic, and lots of friends, and life was great. And I had no experience of um, not being able to cope, and I think that's true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think just some preparation makes that a little bit easier. And what you really want is to have well-educated doctors in student health facilities because what you see time and time again is because, just as you're saying, the first episode often is depression, is is students will go into a student health facility, get treated for depression, and Mm -hmm. they get antidepressants, and then that makes can make them very much worse Mm -hmm. and set them off on a really bad course of disease. So you want doctors to be really educated about what's the difference between depression and bipolar illness. Mm-hmm. And lots of people are and lots of people aren't. Mm-hmm. Okay. And 
Cody or Dr. Jameson, for our listeners, can you describe the other part of bipolar, the the mania part of it? With bipolar, of course, you have the times when you're feeling very low and depressed, but then what are the times when your mood is really high and up? What is that experience like, and how is that different from just someone feeling very excited or eager? Right. I think that mania in about half of people who, who get manic is a highly addictive, high-voltage state where you've just got limitless energy, worlds of ideas, and I, a sense of urgency about getting those ideas out. So you, you know that your ideas are not just important, they're really, really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sense of expansiveness, a kind of a grandiose connection with the universe, a need to communicate what you are feeling and thinking with people, very often very intrusive, very often very bad judgment, buying things that you wouldn't ordinarily buy, couldn't afford to buy. But it's a sort of state, that kind of euphoria that a lot of people who get this illness spend the rest of their lives in a way trying to recapture. Maybe half of people who get manic don't ever have that experience of Mm. euphoria. They just have the kind of extreme irritability Mm -hmm. and paranoia and so forth. And at some point, for most people who do get euphoric, it then gets off in the very irritable state. But it's it's certainly much more than feeling great and excited. There are milder forms of, of mania for sure. But the kind of the the typical classical mania is extremely disruptive, damaging to individuals and to their families. People say awful things. They do pretty awful things and very often spend a lot of time trying to recoup from damage done. Mm -hmm. But it can also be a very seductive state for other people to be around as well. So it's again, it's a complicated illness and, and I think that it's one of the things that makes it interesting and, and very interesting to study. And I was actually looking for your input on this. I often explain mania to patients. My understanding is that it's similar to being on amphetamines or cocaine, only endogenous. Do you think that that's a reasonable place to go? Should I reframe it? Am I oversimplifying things? I think it leaves, in some respects, it leaves cocaine in the dust. And I say that because it's the the energy side of cocaine is what's particularly seductive about cocaine. Mm -hmm. And to a point of focusing of of thinking, and then, of course, it fragments. But the mood component to mania is quite different. I mean, it's sustained over a long period of time. And it's, I think people feel much more uh, just invincible hmm. than people do on cocaine. It's not that, pe- and when you think about what people will do for cocaine, I mean, you know, they'll mm-hmm. run through their finances, they'll run through their family finances mm-hmm. just to get a short-acting high. And then when you think about mania, which can last for months mm-hmm. and is much more powerful, it gives you a sense of some of the clinical issues. Yeah, yeah, that. That's difficult to even wrap my head around that, yeah, something that people would go to those lengths for minutes, lasting for months, has got to be a state of mind that, yeah. I mean, it's... And, and, and I, again, because it's a uh, mania-like depression, it's a series of stagings, mm-hmm. I mean, it's gradations, that people on their way up can often be quite productive. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that 
turns out not to be so productive, but some of it's genuinely productive. Yeah. So people think faster, they have more energy, they they have sort of a recklessness that allows them to break kind of thinking norms. It can mm-hmm. be very, depending on what field you're working in, can be very productive. Yeah. It's just that after a certain point, then it it just all splinters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I've gotten a little bit into the Robert Lowell book that you've written, and it seems like a classic example of that, where mm-hmm. he seems that he did his best writing in the early stages of his mania, then he progressed through and then crashed into the depression. And I intend to read a lot more, of course, but it's fascinating how intertwined bipolar disorder is with the arts and humanities in that regard. Yes, it is. And then actually, I think with with Lowell, like many people, he generated a lot of original thinking mm-hmm. when he was manic. A lot of it was com- hopelessly not useful mm. and not productive. But some of it was just singularly original. And he then carved and worked and sculpted and just worked and worked and worked and revised when he was normal and depressed. And so it was a product across all mood states, but he and his doctors and his friends all believe very strongly that it was that initial stage of mania that kind of propelled him into regions where his mind clearly would not otherwise have gone. Hmm. So you've written books about Robert Lowell, you've written books about your own experience with bipolar disorder and also other experiences you've had in your life. What do you think about, um, you know, as you've seen bipolar disorder both personally and in your career, what do you think about the current state of care for people with bipolar disorder? I think there are at least two answers to care. Mm-hmm. Um, my first one would be a public health one and a political one, which is that we don't make any pretense of having a fair health system in this mm-hmm. country. So, I mean, I can get up in front of a group of people and say, you know, always get a second opinion. Most of the people in the room will not have been able to afford a first opinion. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important always to keep that in mind. Psychiatry is the first thing to go when people start cutting health insurance because it's expensive. Mm. So that's one aspect. So most people don't get decent care. Most people don't get care at all. When people have the ability and access to health care and good doctors, I think the care in this country can be terrific. I mean, just absolutely fabulous. I think that when people are able to combine really good, sophisticated psychopharmacology where people are making decisions based on what they know about the biology of the brain and the course of the illness, combined with psychotherapy that mm-hmm. is not mindless, but really sophisticated and, and human and intelligent, I think it's as good as it gets. How often does that happen? Probably not as often as anybody would like. But we certainly have better treatments now than we did. Although the fact is that the best treatment, the best Mm -hmm. drug treatment remains a drug that was first used for mania 60 years ago. Mm. Got it. Yeah, I think one needs to look no farther than the frequency of the bipolar and schizophrenia diagnosis in the medical records, which should be rare to non-existent to realize how far the gap is between good care and the care that people are receiving. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's it's one of those things, I, I mean, I say it's political partly just because obviously it is, it's legislative and it's, yeah. it's in the law or not in the law. But it's also political in the sense that if you look at what the AIDS community uh, have done, the, I mean, the, the 
capacity for the gay community to mobilize intelligently and vociferously without ever giving up and just keeping the pressure on. Likewise, the breast cancer community. Mm-hmm. And you see what how that has changed the funding for research, mm-hmm. the funding for clinical resources and so forth. I think people who have mental illness haven't advocated to the extent that they have. These are far more common illnesses. They result in as much or, or more death every year, and yet we don't take our votes as seriously. We don't assume that we're voters, I think, in the same way that if you're in the AIDS community, you think you're a voter. If you're in the cancer community, you tend to think of yourself as a voter, and you know, you ask your congressman. We don't do that nearly as much as, as we probably should do. Yeah, and that seems to kind of lead into the next set of questions. I mean, there's obviously a lot of stigma involved with mental illness and discrimination against people with mental illness. What are your thoughts on how we can begin to address this problem as a country, as a community, such that maybe people will feel more comfortable seeking treatment, being out, for lack of a better word, about their condition and being able to get the care they need without feeling that the label is going to somehow limit them? I think a couple of things. First of all, I think it's better than it was, which mm-hmm. isn't saying much, but it is better than it was. I think that using the word discrimination rather than stigma, stigma stigmatizes as, as you say it, and discrimination has a legal quality to it. Mm-hmm. And that I think this is a civil rights issue, yeah. and I think that it should be taken seriously as a civil rights issue. So I am completely convinced that the major source of destigmatization in mental illness, just like any disease, Mm -hmm. is research. Mm -hmm. So that if you look at where changes in public attitude came about with epilepsy, it was when people could control their seizures Mm -hmm. and not having so many in public. In cancer, when you couldn't in the 50s, you couldn't talk about cancer when people began to see it as a not lethal, always lethal illness, mm. the stigma dropped. And it didn't drop entirely, but it certainly dropped a lot. Likewise, when AIDS ceased to be an invariably lethal illness, that was better. And likewise with mental illness, I think that having Prozac, a pill of Prozac, the cover of Newsweek, however irritating in some ways it was, probably did more to destigmatize mental illness because people all of a sudden started talking about it. They saw it as a possibility. People in medicine, I think, instead of feeling like they were never going to get anywhere if they referred their patients to psychiatry, all of a sudden saw their patients getting better when they referred them to psychiatry because there were treatments available. That changes attitudes within the medical profession. It changes attitudes within young doctors in terms of getting treatment themselves. And it changes attitudes ultimately in the public. It's a slow process, but I really, if I had to bet my money, it would always be on, you know, of course, treating people who are ill now, but also just fundamental basic research is going to come up with better treatments. Okay. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different levels of discrimination happening all at once and even just within our community of medical providers there is so I see so much discrimination on a daily basis of even people, you know, with depression, anxiety, what else? Substance abuse. Yes, yeah. substance use disorders are huge. I 
find even with my colleagues or with people who supervise me or people who um, I supervise, there's a lot of discrimination and still misunderstandings about how it's, you know, just a medical condition, just a chronic disease, just like any other, like having heart failure or high blood pressure. And you're going to have times where it's less controlled because things have happened and you'll work together with them to find strategies to get back on track. I still find that people kind of put it in a different bucket and we all definitely have biases that we need to recognize. And, and it's, it's not, I mean, I think it's not unreasonable to yeah. have biases. I mean, I, I think, is it where stigma exists for a reason? And I think yeah. if you don't understand something or you're frightened yeah. of someone or you can't predict someone's behavior, it's the most human thing in the world. I mean, animals do it all the time. You know, if you're a dolphin and a dolphin comes into your pod and squeaks differently, you're going to attack that dolphin. That's just the nature of how... Yeah animals are wired. So it's, I think it's very unreasonable to say that we should be so worthy as to always understand things that are very difficult to understand. I think it's, we ought to make a lot more of a try. Yeah. And there's a lot a lot known now. I mean, that thing that I find so striking is how much the medical community and how much the general population doesn't understand about how much science there is that backs these illnesses yeah. up. You know, and I think that's something we need to be able to communicate better. Yeah. And I do think that one of the challenges we face might be that it's really scary to confront the idea that behaviors this complex can be part of a disease, that some genes down in your nuclei can result in you taking actions that just don't make sense to the people around you. I mean, yeah, and I think that, you know, it's, and it's, it's very human and it's very understandable. It just kind of hopefully will change. But yeah. I know that I got asked by one of my colleagues here at Hopkins, whom I adore, who's a wonderful man and tremendously understanding, incredibly smart. But he was talking about Robert Lowell, and he said, but Robert Lowell, the things that he did when he was manic, wasn't that just an excuse for doing bad things that he wanted to do? Mm. A perfectly understandable question. And I said, well, you know, but if somebody were in the ICU with delirium and they took out a pair of scissors and went for a nurse's throat... You wouldn't say that's what that person had always been wanting to do, was to take scissors to a nurse's throat. You would say delirium, Mm -hmm. you know, and you treat the delirium and you put the judgments on hold. And I think that that's where some of the difficulty is, that we just don't know where to to draw those lines. We don't know what causes a lot of this. So our next question is, what are some common misconceptions about bipolar disorder and what are some of the things that you wish people understood better about bipolar disorder? I wish people understood how common it is, how hard it is to, for people, particularly when young, but at any age, to to deal with these things. It's, it's not an obvious sort of thing. Nobody gives you a guidebook on how to navigate severe depression or how to navigate psychosis. You, you aren't brought up that way. So there's no, most of the things that you confront in life, you've had at least some prior experience with or some expectation of how to how to handle it uh, or people will come in and help there's something about psychosis of losing your mind of the terror that it will happen again i think sometimes people can understand that if you've had cancer or a heart attack that you're going to be frightened that it will come back that mm-hmm. you'll have another heart attack or cancer may recur people don't understand so much how frightening it can be to lose your mind and then live in terror 
that that's going to happen again. It's just sort of one of the things doctors, psychiatrists don't tend to talk about very much. And I think for family members, it's also family members don't get a whole lot of understanding about how difficult it is to be a family member. Yeah. And that leads perfectly into our next question. How do you think friends, family members, and professional colleagues can best support people with bipolar disorder and kind of augment their resilience that they would be developing through their treatment? I think a couple of things. One is when the, the individual's well, hmm. to much as I would say the residents, you know, ask people what they went through. Hmm. Ask them what they experienced. What was it like? What were you frightened by? What what might have been enjoyable? What what would you like me to do differently? Hmm. How would you like me? And to if you get depressed again, you know, whether you're, I'm your doctor, or your family member, your friend, how what would make it easier for you? How can you communicate to me when you can't communicate? Would it help to write these things out, to keep a record of these things? I mean, but always to read and to learn. I mean, there is a lot to learn about these illnesses. There's a lot on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Some of it's not so great, but there's a lot out there that's good. And there's support groups out there. You know, there are advocacy groups. There's support groups in most colleges now, universities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take advantage of the fact that people know a lot about these illnesses. Okay. With respect to, we talked a little bit about this with respect to Robert Lowell, and we talked also about how there's some challenges getting people to accept the fact that medication is going to be a necessary part of their lives if they want to be in good mental health. Do you, how do you approach the problem that treatment of bipolar disorder would be expected to potentially interfere with the uh, creative process or their personality in some way. Do people feel that you're trying to take some fundamental part of them away by treating this? I, I think the first thing is to to know the science and to know the possible benefits of the illness to individuals, but also for sure to know the complications of, of drug use, suicide, and the progressive nature of the disease, and that it takes a hit on the brain. And most people aren't aware of those things, that, you know, this, this is not a benign illness. This is really an illness that is progressive if it isn't treated. So I think it's very important for doctors to be very aware of that. But one of the things that we just did in April was we had a consensus meeting here at Hopkins asking a slew of uh, people who specialize in bipolar illness to come in f- uh, from various universities and medical schools and talk about how do you approach patients from the very beginning saying, look, I know this is an odd illness that can confer advantage. We want to deal with that up front. Mm-hmm. We don't want to take something away. From- We're not just here to say it's sort of like killer weed, you know, you're going to die and, and so forth. What we want to do is have a kind of relationship where you feel free to discuss these things, where I can learn from you mm-hmm. about what it is and how it is that we can deal with this so that we maintain the good things, that we titrate medications in such a way that we do it in an intelligent way, that we monitor your moods in such a way that you can maybe come down on medication so you don't have so many side effects. It's a very different situation in this day and age because people are kept at much lower lithium levels. Okay. So, you know, it's not like, well, I was first born on lithium. I mean, you know, it really is just sort of obliterated in a way, mm. you know, motivation, tiredness, thinking, and all those kinds of things. It's just not true now. And I think most people still have a notion mm. that, you know, if you take medications, you're going to lose this. In fact, the, the two studies that have been done have actually shown that artists and writers feel 
as creative or more creative oh. on treatment oh, because, wow. because they're losing so much time to depression and mm-hmm. mania. That makes sense. Yeah, because, I mean, as you were describing the process, there's a number of phases there where someone couldn't possibly be expected to be productive in any meaningful way. And what you want to do is you say, you know, you've got this illness for life. I'm trying to help you with it. How can we figure out how to deal with this best? You know, to say up front, it's a problem. It's a complicated problem. It's an interesting problem. It's your life. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. we know a lot and we can try and try and help, help as best we can. Okay. So Dr. Jameson, you're an academic clinical psychologist. So when did you first decide on a career in academics and why? I decided when I was very young, I come from a family of a lot of professors or people Mm -hmm. in academics, and it always seemed like the most free and interesting kind of world to be in. So I always knew, and I I always planned to be a doctor. And those two things, actually, I hoped to be a vet and actually almost went back to being a veterinarian when I was in graduate school. Oh, wow. But I always was interested in those things and was fortunate to have parents who... You know, really back mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. In your experience, what do you think separates a successful academic career from a less successful one? Since we've seen a whole lot of academic struggles in recent years. Well, I think. I mean, I think a couple things. One is, I think a lot of people go into academics who really aren't particularly original mm-hmm. or particularly good academics, and mm-hmm. they they like the idea of being an academic better than they <laughs> are good academics, and I think that's just. You know, it's true of a lot of fields, Mm -hmm. but people kind of just wander out of graduate school or medical school or residency and sort of think that's the next logical thing because all I've been doing is seeing professors for the last, you know, 15 years. So I think some of it's selection that Mm -hmm. I'm a great believer that, you know, there's a kind of a successful track in academics and then there's a kind of break through the roof kind of tracks where Mm -hmm. people don't go the usual way, fight and um, somehow pull it off. So I think there are whole lots of different kinds of academics. I think there's a very predictable route in, in academics mm-hmm. where you publish and blah, 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 you know, the usual route. And then there's one where people, I think, carve out their own niche. So it sounds like creativity may be one of the key factors. Oh, there. absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't think probably most academics are, are that creative. I mean, they're mm. more creative than most, but mm. I, I don't think... Uh, it's like most artists aren't great artists. Most poets aren't great poets. You know, there's only going to be a kernel that's going to be astonishing. So I think you, what you want to do is really encourage those people because oftentimes they are bucking the system mm. and, you know, mm-hmm. they're not going to do the right things. Now, a lot of people who buck the system who haven't got any talent, so... Mm. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it's a more complicated recipe than just having any one factor, for sure. Yeah, there's no way on God's green planet. I think people, I mean, one of the great things that we know is that there's a huge diversity of of ways of thinking. And, uh, I mean, you you get that in the arts, you get that from entrepreneurs, you get that, you know, in science. I mean, the kinds of creativity, they're kind of the worker bees, and then there are people who just every now and then just, you know, breakthrough. So me and Cody are millennials, of course, and we're one of the many hundreds of thousands of millennials that are in the workforce right now. I've talked to some of my family members who are more in business about their experiences of working with millennials and how they're changing work culture. So from your own experience, 
hand projecting towards the future, how do you think that the millennial sort of desire for more freedom, flexibility, and fewer work hours is going to affect the field of academic medicine? You know, I, I'm a little skeptical at the kind of just labeling people millennials. Yeah. And okay. I think that temperament has been pretty, again, if you just get out of being human beings and you get into the world of mammals, temperament's a pretty consistent thing across species. So there are always going to be people who are kind of like the 20% who are kind of a risk aversive and and maybe got all sorts of encouragement from their parents to be risk aversive and their parents took the risks for them or not at all. And then there are going to be 20% who just gallop, you know, and I doubt very much that that's going to be bound. I don't think this is so special. Got it. We're talking about a tiny, tiny yeah. group of people out of human history. Hmm. You know, I hope to God that it's not going to be just people who want nice hours and, yeah. and so forth. You know, of course you want that for most people, but you always want a certain percentage of people who just, you know, are, you know, out for the the gold ring. I mean, you know, you, you want different kinds of temperaments. I, I, I'm not so convinced that millennials, I mean, I, I do go to campuses and, this, and see this kind of hovering, helicoptering routine, which just personally drives me wild. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm very grateful that my parents didn't take that point of view. They just sort of left us, dropped us somewhere, <laughs> you know, showed up 12 hours later and, you know, never bothered us. Um, I think there's something damaging about that ultimately, but, you know, that's just one point of view. Okay. One of the things that we think about a lot with this Humanity Against Disease project is the funding problems in science. And I wanted to get your perspective on that. How do you think we should address the funding problems in science, I guess, at the societal level or as academicians? Is it possible that we have too many scientists? Are they making career choices that are too narrow? Or is it just a matter of we're not letting people know that we have this supply of people who are willing to do science if we can get money into their labs? Again, it depends on what you're funding, because there's a lot of very boring science, and we all know that, that's incremental. Yeah. And it has to be done. Who should fund that? I don't know. The NIH, the government system, it kind of gears toward conservative science. Again, maybe that's good, maybe not. I think people, again, it's a political question and it's a personal question. The political question is how much pressure do you put on government leaders to say science is important, how unpersuasive have we been, and how much as a subgroup of medicine in terms of psychiatry, how much do you say you've got to really figure out an interesting way of getting people in Congress to recognize. Now, you don't have to have that much trouble because people in Congress have a lot of kids who have psychiatric problems, so it's not like it's not like they're unfamiliar with these issues. Yeah. But I think people have to just keep putting on political pressure, and I think that that will happen. I think increasingly with mental illness, that's been true. I think people talk about it more. Suicide has become such a, a program and so, a, a problem and so forth. I also think philanthropy is clearly uh, an important part of society. And yeah. Again, it's a, it's a matter of being imaginative and how you, you know, there's a sense of entitlement sometimes in science that just because they're young scientists, they should be funded. Mm-hmm. And it's horrifying that as much great science 
that could be fun, funded isn't funded. So you, somewhere between those two, you want to be able to raise enough money in an interesting way. But I think it's up to scientists and, and medical schools to come up with some original ways of looking at it. I think philanthropy has come in a lot, yeah. certainly in psychiatry, fortunately, in the last 20 years. It didn't used to be. People mm. didn't want to be attached, didn't want their names attached to philanthropy. Okay. Oh, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, well, anything else? <laughs> no, that's everything. Have you ever listened to the Humanity Against Disease podcast and wondered how to get in touch with us? Have you ever tried to contact us by carrier pigeon and failed? Well, we have news for you. You can reach us by a couple of different methods. So we got our electronic mail address, which is againstdisease at gmail.com. We have a Twitter handle, which is at againstdisease. We've got an Instagram, which is also at Against Disease. And we have a Facebook, which the easiest way to find us is to type Humanity Against Disease into the search tab and like us or message us about anything. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see our regular website, which is updated a little less often, but has a lot of the pillars, mission statements, et cetera, that is humanityagainstdisease.com.